Hey, LivePoint, I hope that uh, wherever you are and whenever and however you're viewing this, that uh, you're healthy and that you are taking advantage of these days and uh, making the most of this unique moment in history. I read this week that uh, in every obstacle, there's also an opportunity. So I hope that instead of obsessing uh, on the obstacles, that you're optimizing the opportunities that are presented by the circumstances that we're all facing together. In everything, give thanks, the Bible says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I'm giving thanks that uh, all of you from LifePoint who participated in the World Vision 6K Walk for Water uh, raised over $2,000. And, man, I'm proud of you, so thank you for your work. Thank you for, for all that you did that day. I hope it was enjoyable, and, and thanks for participating. Some of you have asked where we're going here in these uh, these next days and weeks as things begin to reopen. Um want to let you know that we're going to reopen as soon as we can. Uh, in our case, there are some mitigating circumstances. For example, we, we have some work to finish up on the building. Um, we need to obtain uh, a, a permit from the fire inspectors. We need to pass that fire inspection. And, uh, and then we're going to need to get an occupancy permit. So um, as soon as we can do those things, as soon as we can finish up all the work here, um, we're gonna, we're gonna open just as soon as we can. Um, we need volunteers who have specific skills, and if you're available, please contact Pastor Evan, um, and, uh, and, uh, he'll find a place for you to serve. Uh, I'm gonna share, be sharing more this next week. Uh, so watch for a video from me, uh, on our LifePoint Church Facebook, uh, community page, and, uh, That'll have a whole bunch more information. Before I pray and before we get into God's Word, I also want to remind you that, uh, or let you know if, if you hadn't heard, that at the close of this message, uh, I'm going to be leading you in communion. And that means that uh, that you're going to need some grape juice or pomegranate juice or prune juice uh, or wine uh, and some bread. What matters is not so much the elements themselves, but uh, what they actually symbolize. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I led a group of teenagers uh, on a bus on a mission trip in communion uh, using day-old pizza and Coca-Cola. It was meaningful and it was memorable. So if you haven't already prepared some elements at your place, then you might want to head into the kitchen right now if you can so that you'll be prepared later. Well, let's bow in prayer together. Father God, we thank you for this day and for these days. We thank you for uh, the challenges that they have represented because those have caused us to learn and to grow. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your presence with us. And we thank you that even when we're apart, even when we're scattered, we're still the church. We're still the body of Christ. We're still the family of God. Uh, We're still your kids. And uh, so we pray that you would give us real creativity in reaching out to each other in all the ways that we still can. And we look forward to the day when we'll all be here together again. Father, we pray now that by your spirit you come and be our teacher, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, 
open our minds, open our ears, open our wills, that we would be willing to respond in faith and obedience to the things that you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you're probably aware, we're in a series that we've titled um, Simple Virtues for Complex Times, which is rooted in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Paul wrote there, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And today we've come to the sixth message in this series, and we're examining the the sixth segment of the fruit, which is goodness. I think it's kind of funny that I drew the straw because I have so little direct personal experience or familiarity with goodness in my own life. I wonder if you've noticed, as I have, that that nobody seems to get very excited about goodness anymore. Have you noticed? I mean, our, our culture celebrates badness over goodness. It's now a good thing to be badass, which is apparently something different than a naughty donkey. And Michael Jackson made a lot of money singing, I'm bad, I'm bad, who's bad? I'm bad. And George Thorogood claimed that he was bad to the bone. And the one and only James Brown didn't settle for being just bad. He sang, I got soul and I'm super bad. So why don't people write songs about being good? Uh, Why aren't we more enthusiastic about that? Maybe part of the answer is that we have such an anemic understanding of of what goodness really looks like. I mean, the whole of our concept of, of being good can't be defined simply as not being bad. So if my mom goes to the store and says to me, be good while I'm gone, and when she returns, I haven't set the house on fire or abused the cat, or shoved my brother's head in the toilet, have I actually been good? Or have I simply refrained from being bad? By the way, we we don't tell our children to be good because it's in their nature to be good, but because we know that it's in their nature to be bad. You never have to tell your children to be bad. They can do it all by themselves. It's like the kid who prayed, lead me not into temptation. I, I can find it. For myself, thank you very much. Amen. What is goodness anyway? What what does the Bible have to say about goodness? When we look back at the Old Testament, the focus really, when it it comes to goodness, centers on the character of God, on, on his essential nature. So most of the occurrences of the word good in the Old Testament really are describing God himself. For example, turn with me in your Bible to Exodus chapter 33. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. Verse 11 says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. I mean, how cool is that? So they're having one of those intimate conversations. And in verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, that is God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, 
and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. So a few important observations here. First, what an incredible moment, huh? Second, notice how intimate their relationship is really is that that Moses could make this kind of audacious request of the creator of the universe and in return receive such a graciously audacious answer. You know, we sing a song here at LifePoint occasionally in, in, in which the phrase is repeated, show us, show us your glory. And sometimes when we're singing that, I'm thinking, If that actually happens, we're all dead. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll show you as much as you can handle without dying where you're standing. Third, notice the interplay of the words glory and goodness in this passage. In verse 18, Moses says, show me your glory. And in verse 19, the Lord answers, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And then in verse 22, the Lord says, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. You see, God's glory is his goodness. His goodness is his glory. You want to see the glory of the Lord? Take a deep dive into his goodness. And when you do, what you'll begin to encounter is, first of all, his, his moral purity expressed in his holiness, his righteousness, his justice. And, and you'll see things like his integrity, by which I mean his reality, his truthfulness, his faithfulness. And eventually, you're just going to be overwhelmed by his love expressed in his generosity and his grace and mercy, his persistence, his patience with you and with all of us. Psalm 145 is the last of King David's psalms. And it's a song of praise to God. He's celebrating the greatness of God's character. And in verses 8 to 9, he says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The Lord is good to all. Jesus echoed that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, when he said, For he, that is God, makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And in Luke 6.35, Jesus said, He, that is God, is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. The Lord is good to all. 
back in Psalm 145, a few verses later, David's describing the expression of the Lord's goodness and mercy when he says, the Lord upholds all who are falling and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. See, David's able to sing the the goodness and the mercy of the Lord because he has seen it demonstrated over and over and over again in his own relationship with God. First Chronicles 16.34, David said, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. His love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. In chapter 10 of his gospel, Mark recorded a moment in the ministry of Jesus that's somewhat important to where we're going today. Verses 17 to 18 of Mark chapter 10. As he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Somewhere in history, this man received the label, the rich young ruler, and there's there's a whole bunch more to his story. But it occurs to me that, that many, if not most of us, when we're reading this story, hurry right past the power of this initial encounter. He addresses Jesus as good teacher. And, and before answering his powerful question, which is, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus takes the opportunity to ask him, why do you call me good? I mean, wait a minute. Why why do you call me good? Is Jesus rebuking him? Possibly. Is Jesus asking a rhetorical question to test this man's understanding of his true identity? Probably. This question, why do you call me good, is is really similar in, in its impact to the question Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? And here Jesus adds, no one is good except God alone. And the logic of his words could only leave one conclusion, that he himself is God. The reformer John Calvin wrote that, It's vitally necessary to descend from a devout musing on the Godhead to come to a proper consideration of ourselves. That is to say that it is in understanding the fullness of who and what God is 
that we arrive at a proper understanding of the fullness of who and what we are to be and to become in Christ. When in our quest to understand what goodness is, we turn to the New Testament, we're confronted by the the radical realization that goodness, which defines the essential nature of God himself, (laughs) is to be exhibited, exhibited also in our lives as followers of Jesus and become part of our essential nature. To the church in Ephesus, Paul wrote in chapter 5, verse 8, For once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The root word for goodness in Galatians 5.22 and here in Ephesians 5 and elsewhere is agathos. Agathos. It describes that which is inherently good, good through and through, and beneficial to others. So if you know someone named Agatha, her name means good and beneficial. But the word goodness occurs only four times in the entire New Testament. Each occurrence, each occurrence in the, in the writings of the Apostle Paul who used it to describe a moral quality. The word is agathosune. It's the word Paul used in Galatians 5.22 in describing the fruit of the Spirit. In Romans 15 verse 14, Paul wrote, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul wrote, We constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and every deed prompted by faith. But but we have to ask a question here. What's changed? What occurred between the time of the Old Testament and the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians and implied that goodness that the goodness that defines the essential nature of God can become part of our essential nature as human beings as well? And the answer is the incarnation of God in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion on a Roman cross, his death and burial, his resurrection on the third day from the dead, and the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit on the church. The Bible says that as we transfer our trust from ourselves and from our own futile efforts to reach God and to merit his favor to what Jesus Christ accomplished for us at the cross, God, by his mercy and grace, forgives all of our sin and by his spirit takes up residence in our lives and begins a process of transforming us from the inside out. Paul wrote to his friend Titus, God saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. To the church in Corinth he wrote, wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. 
Well, what's our part in all of that? Our part is to rest our faith in Jesus and to remain in a vital relationship with him. In John 15, Jesus described it like this, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You might ask, what what do branches do? And the answer is, they hang out. They just hang out. They're, they're, they're conduits for, for the life that's in the vine. And as that life makes its way from the vine to the tips of their branches, the miracle of fruit bearing occurs. Fruit bearing is the evidence that a branch is fully connected, that it's healthy. And in the same way, spiritual fruit bearing in and through our lives is the evidence that we're abiding in Christ, that, that we're living in vital relationship with him, allowing his life to flow through ours to impact and to influence others. Someone once said that you, you can't live the Jesus life unless the life of Jesus lives in you. Last week, Matt taught us about kindness. Kindness and goodness go together. They're twins. And from a biblical perspective, kindness is really kind-heartedness. It's, it's the disposition that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. And then goodness is the demonstration of that kindness. Disposition and demonstration. Kindness, goodness, disposition, demonstration. Another way of expressing that is that kindness is the posture And goodness is the proof, the practice that proceeds from that posture. Kind is who you are and what you are, and goodness is what you do. Kindness and goodness aren't the means of our salvation. You you don't impress God by simply kind of exerting your, your will to be kind and to be good. Kindness and goodness are the evidence of our salvation. Years ago, there was a a slogan that was kind of going around, and and if Facebook had been in existence at the time, it would have been all over Facebook. It said, practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty. From a spiritual perspective, the kind of kindness that the Bible describes and the kind of goodness that the Bible describes aren't, aren't random. They're consistent. They, they flow out of who we are in Christ. Check out Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where Paul said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Now, wait for this, for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This kindness and this goodness 
that is the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, the result of abiding in Christ, is, is then to be expressed in our homes and in our neighborhoods, in our communities, our workplaces, even in our church. Paul said that as Christ followers in this world, we're, we're always to seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And he, he said, as we have opportunity, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The English evangelist John Wesley urged the people in his church to do all the good you can, by all the means you can, to all the people you can, for as long as you can. And that's what Jesus did in in his life. The Apostle Peter said of Jesus, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And Jesus did what neither Muhammad, nor Buddha, nor Krishna, nor Confucius, nor Joseph Smith, nor Brigham Young, nor Mary Baker Eddy, nor Charles Taze Russell, nor the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, or the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh could do. He willingly gave up the splendors of heaven, took on human flesh, was was born as one of us, lived the life we could not live, and then sacrificed his life as the full and final payment for all of our failure to meet God's righteous standard. So that through personal faith in him, then, our sins could be forgiven once and for all and forever. He died our death. He was buried and then he was raised to life on the third day by the power of God, defeating sin and death forever for those who will trust in him. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father and one day he'll come again for all who trust in him and are patiently waiting for him to take us home. Let me ask you today, are you ready for his coming? I want to invite you, I I want to urge you today to put your faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What that means is that no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, when you call in faith on the Lord, he will save you. Where you are, as you are, he will save you. He'll do it. It's not by works of righteousness. It's not, it's not by good works that we've done, but by his mercy that he saves us. It's by his mercy. It's by his grace. And if you'd like to talk with someone about this decision, you, you, you can email us at info at lpcoli.com or, or you can go to the central hub, mylpclacy.com, fill out a connect card, and someone will respond to you right away. Some of you this morning have been believers for a long time and you, you've never been baptized. And I want to urge you to take that step of faith and obedience. As soon as we're able to perform baptisms again, I, I want to schedule a, 
a baptismal service here in our newly remodeled facility. You can go to mylpclacy.com, click on Next Steps, and then the Baptism tab, fill out the form. Let us know of your desire to be baptized, and, and we'll make plans to include you in that service. Well, let's pray, and then in a moment, we'll celebrate communion together. Lord, we thank you that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy that you saved us. That you take sinners like me, like all of us, and and you take up resonance in our lives and you transform us and conform us to your own image that that uh, as we live in, in vital relationship with you, as we abide in you, you do that work of transformation that makes us more and more like Jesus. Father, I pray today for those who have not yet made the decision to trust in Christ that today might be the day that they stop running and they stop avoiding and they say yes to Jesus and they transfer their trust from their own performance to what Christ accomplished for them at the cross. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the work you're doing in our lives. Help us to keep making ourselves available to you to do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. So now we come to communion together, and it's been a while since we've celebrated communion, and I I, I just like to share a few thoughts about communion as we enter in. First of all, communion is the exclusive privilege of those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior. It, it's for the family of God. Communion is a, a look backward in, in remembrance of the body of Christ that, that he offered as the atoning sacrifice for all of our sin. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus, on the, the night when he was betrayed, took bread and he blessed it and he gave thanks for it, and then he broke it. And he said, take it and eat it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, the elements are symbolic, but they're meaningful. We we don't believe that, we don't teach that, that the bread actually becomes the flesh of Jesus as we eat it, or that the juice or the wine becomes the actual blood of Christ as we drink it. And neither is it necessary for that to happen. Jesus, our high priest, offered for us for all time one single sacrifice for sin. And then he sat down at the right hand of God. His work was completed. 
So we don't need to symbolically crucify Jesus over and over again. Communion is also a look outward and in recognition of the the body of Christ, which is the family of God. That night in the upper room, Jesus' disciples ate from the same loaf. They they drank from the same cup. And, And though we're apart from each other right now physically, as we partake of the, the bread and the cup today, we symbolically do the same thing. We're, we're reminded that, that we are alike in our sin and in our need for a Savior and in the salvation that we share by His grace alone. And we're reminded of our oneness in Christ and of how essential it is that, that we are each personally diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Third communion is a a look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to his disciples as he shared the cup, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As we partake of communion together, we're remembering that Jesus is coming and his coming is closer than it's ever been. Finally, communion is a a look inward. It's a symbolic proclamation of the gospel. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To, To participate in communion is first to preach the gospel to ourselves, a time to take stock of the status of our own relationship of faith and obedience to Christ. And it's second to preach the gospel to one another as we share together in the elements. And it's third to preach the gospel to our children and others who may be observing. Communion sets up a a great opportunity for you to have conversations with your children about who Jesus is and what he did and, and what he can do for them if they will trust in him. Well, let's pray together again before we eat and drink. Lord Jesus, we look back this morning. We remember the suffering that you endured to accomplish our salvation. We we confess our sin to you. We give thanks that the blood that you shed on the cross keeps on cleansing us from all of our sin. And we look outward and we give thanks that you've given us to each other, that we're mutual partakers in, in your grace and, and help us, Lord, to grow in love for each other and to be diligent to preserve that unity that your spirit is working and wants to work among us. And we look forward to that day when we'll see you face to face, when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, that when our mortal bodies will have put on immortality and death will finally be swallowed up in sweet victory. And we look inward and we're reminded of the gospel that is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, that our salvation is a gift of your grace and not a trophy of our good works. We love you, Lord. We give thanks to you. Amen. Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take it and eat it, all of you.
in remembrance of me. Next, Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we're reminded of those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When you joined them and taught them about yourself and and then in a flash of recognition, they knew it was you. And afterward they said, we, we recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So Lord, today we remember you in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. And we look forward to the day that we'll see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Life Point. Have a great week.